All right, um, tonight we are in our continuing uh, series on healing, um, and we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 2, um, and we're going to be looking at uh, the paralytic man and his healing. But before we get there, I want to do a review, and kids who are uh, 8 to uh, 12, I want to show you why you want to focus on your sheet and why you um, might have an opportunity to get up here on the screen. So what we talked about last week was the uh, man with leprosy. And so if you can see up here on this uh, screen, one of the kids drew a man with leprosy, and all of the people are slamming their doors on him. So there's like a rejection of him. And so that's, that is the state of a man with leprosy. And we talked about how Jesus often connects leprosy to sin and, um, and how leprosy, which is a skin disease, separates you from community separates you from the opportunity to worship God. Now, one of the girls who drew an awesome cartoon, and I know most of you probably can't see this, so I will just kind of walk through the cartoon and it reviews the sermon. But the first thing is we got we got Jesus up here. I know I'm blocking you guys, but I'll leave it up here for a second. We got Jesus up here, and so it says Jesus, and he's sighing. We got Jesus sighing. And then there's a man who comes to him, he's got leprosy, and he says, cleanse me if you're willing and then Jesus says, I'm willing, be clean. And then he says to the guy, don't tell anyone. And the guy says, okay. And then the next slide has him going, <laughs> and then he, uh, he says, uh, he just goes to everybody and says, Jesus cleansed me. And then this girl says, really? And then all of a sudden there's Jesus and these three lepers yelling, cleanse me. Or people are looking to cleanse me. And, and Jesus says, oh my. Um, and so the last thing says, Jesus ran away after healing. And it has Jesus <laughs> sitting in the corner there. Very good, very good review of the sermon. Um, and then really the next picture that I did not have a name on it really depicts the application of last week's sermon. Um, and that is that they needed to draw a man who had a skin disease. And so they drew that person and you can see his arm is falling off, and he's got lots of spots, but then, in, yeah, into the fire, and he's losing his foot. Yeah, there's a lot going on with this guy, um, but the really cool part about this is that the person put me in the middle. You can see that they sketched me in the middle, which was a pretty powerful understanding of what we were, were talking about. Um, and so we've been in this process of talking about what it looks like to offer a healing to one another and, and following in Jesus' footsteps um, and kind of trying to figure out how he does it. And we've also been in this conversation about what it looks like to be people who are healed and how we come to Jesus and the different states that, that we have in need of healing. Um, and so we come tonight to Mark chapter 2. Uh, and let's move backwards here. Mark chapter. <laughs> um, I don't know if that person wants to reveal. Them. Does anybody know who did the last art piece? <laughs> no, it was, it's not Donovan. I know that. Anybody? You guys remember who did that piece of art? Nobody knows. The artist will stay anonymous. <laughs> Third one. 
All right. Well, we're going to go to Mark chapter 2, and um, the mystery of the artist will have to be solved later. Mark chapter 2. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Well, again, we will have to um, leave that as a mystery. So we're going to jump into uh, Mark chapter 2. And really, it's, it's very, the event is very close to the healing of the leper, to the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. In the Gospel of Mark, there's just a whole series at the beginning of Jesus' ministry of healings, of casting out of demons, of all those kinds of things. And so we're going to look at Mark chapter 2, as I said. We'll just start out in the very beginning. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Um, I just want to stop there and talk about Capernaum for a minute. So usually I say this because it's just easier on me. Most of you have Google. So you can Google a map of first century Israel. And what you'll find is Capernaum is up on Galilee. And the rest of Israel kind of flows on down. And if you look at Gospel of Luke chapter 5, you'll find out that... Um, what, we're going to find out there's going to be all these crowds, and what you'll find out is that people all over Israel have come up to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum actually is a rather wealthy city, and I think a lot of times when we think about Jesus and we think about him being in homes, we're thinking about wood or mud huts with kind of wimpy roofs, but uh, roofs or however you guys say it, I don't know, it depends what part of the country you're from, um, or if you have a list or anything like that, but speaking of roof or roof or however you want to say it. Um, but in Capernaum, most likely, most of the houses, from we know from archaeology and stuff, are there, they're pretty big, and they have courtyards, and they have multiple rooms. And both Gospel of Luke, Matthew, and Mark tell us that this is where Jesus started his ministry. This was kind of his home base. It was his home. So some scholars speculate that this house that Jesus is in Maybe his own house or a house of a relative, but it was a place where he would come back to um, and he would hang out in. Okay, So this, is, this isn't just some random house that he's hanging out in. This is his house, or it's at least his relative's house. Okay, And so that's where this whole big event is taking place. So many gathered that there was no room left, no even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Now, what Luke tells us is that the, most of these people were scribes and Pharisees, that they came from all over Israel. So most likely, the majority of this crowd in this particular event where Jesus is teaching are scribes and Pharisees. They're the ones kind of in the crowd. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't anybody looking to be healed or to learn about Jesus in the town, but this is kind of like Jesus as he was going around doing his ministry he was handing out flyers saying, hey, I'm doing a conference, you know, and it's just before Passover. Come, learn what I really think at my house. You know, so all of these guys are there. Well, probably that's not the reason. The reason is, is that Jesus has started his ministry and the Pharisees and the scribes' jobs, sets of them from the different, um, these different towns, their job was to go check in on Jesus and make sure he was actually saying the right stuff. You see, the scribes were the big guys. They're the lawyers. They're the guys who tell you when you have done the wrong thing. They're the guys when, when you talk about Sabbath and you're not allowed to work on Sabbath, the scribe tells you what work is and what work isn't. 
so that if you get in trouble because you're working, you get a scribe to defend you and he can split the law and then another scribe is going to accuse you. These are the big guys. They know the law. They know the rules. They've made up a bunch of them. Okay, they've kind of, and then the Pharisees are kind of the enforcers. The Pharisees are the lower level, beat you up, make sure you stay in line, you know, take care of the guy who's outside of the bounds, you know, that's what the Pharisees are. So they come along with the scribes. They're the ones who make sure everybody does what they're supposed to do. Usually when there's a young leader like Jesus coming into the scene and people are crowding around him, there's going to be a lot of scribes. There's going to be a lot of people checking up to make sure that he's saying the right stuff. Okay? And so that's kind of who's in this crowd of people. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. So, we got four guys. They're carrying a guy, and they can't get into Jesus. So what happens is, it's not like they, you know, put a ladder up and then like slid him up the ladder like, you know, you would do with a swamp cooler or something, or, you know, put ropes. Basically, there's probably steps, and they climbed up the steps, and then they climbed onto the roof. And the roof was really thick. It wasn't, it's not just like they removed a few leaves from the roof. This is a six foot by four foot hole they're digging into somebody's house. And so there is Jesus preaching, and as he's preaching, and I think this is really important, you've got to imagine that there he is talking about God, talking about the Old Testament, people are nodding their head, and dirt is falling on his head, and dirt is falling on them, and who knows if he's like pausing, if everybody's looking up, or if Jesus is just going at it. Now here's what I imagine. Um, Whitfield, George Whitfield, was a, a famous evangelist, and um, he had a really loud voice, and he lived around the same time that Thomas Jefferson lived because they were buddies. And Thomas Jefferson actually figured out how loud Whitfield's voice was and how many people he could speak to. Um, and it's something like 20,000 without amplification, somewhere between 20,000 and 30,000 people he could just speak to, right? Um, so I imagine, actually, that that's the way Jesus was because we know he spoke to huge crowds. So he probably has this really loud, booming voice, and dirt's kind of falling on his head, and he's just going. Like, nothing is stopping him. He's talking, he's wiping his brow, it's like the sweat is now mud on his face. He's going at it, because there's no fans, no swamp cooling, no air conditioning, and he and everybody's crowded in, they're listening, because, man, you're listening to the God of the universe tell you about the Old Testament. I imagine that there's at least something compelling about that. And the dirt's falling down, and they're digging a hole. And then they get the hole, and it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. No. I want to talk about faith for just one second. And I, I've, I've said this before a lot, but when we think about faith, I think a lot of times most of us are like, Wow, I don't know. I don't have a lot of faith. I don't, you know... Here's a, it does not say that Jesus looked inside their hearts and knew their faith. And that he knew all of what they were thinking and he knew that they didn't have any doubts and he knew that they had no struggles. And so he, no, it just says he saw their faith. Faith is something that you see. And here's the thing, if you come 
on a Sunday night, for instance, and you are willing to listen to a guy who wears, you know, vests and bandanas and yells at you a little bit um, and tells you to be quiet and is trying to tell you about the Bible, you actually have faith. Like, you're willing to do that. That's pretty risky. Um, but it's evidence that you believe that coming into a community of people who believe in Jesus and who are who are talking about Jesus is a transformative thing, that you're going to get some kind of value out of it, right? That's that's faith. That's faith. Even if you're thinking, man, I don't even know if Jesus is real. But your actions are saying you believe that he's, that he has something good to offer you and that he's probably more than you actually are willing to internally say is true. You, you, your actions are saying are true, right? Because faith is about doing it. Faith is not about, you know, kind of um, making sure all of your feelings are in line, right? Making sure everything is good. And so when Jesus sees their faith, he forgives this guy's sins. Now, you have to imagine, these, these men do have faith. They have some connection to Jesus, right? They have some, I don't know, maybe they knew Jesus. Maybe they're Jesus... They knew him from some business deals. They knew his story. Maybe they talked to him. But something in them said, if we can get our friend who is paralyzed to him, something good will happen. So they get to the door and it's blocked. And so maybe they've watched way too many MacGyver episodes, but they think all we need to do is climb up on the roof and get a hole. Right? We'll dig a hole. And so they dig a hole. But when they're lowering him down, I mean, it doesn't say this anywhere, but when they're lowering him down and they hear Jesus say to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. I don't know. I mean, maybe their hearts just drop because I think their hope is that their buddy who they've been probably taking care of for most of his life or something drastic happened to him recently and he's paralyzed, like that he'd be fixed, that he'd be taken care of, that it would be done. And yet Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, I think there are, there are a couple reasons why Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. The number one is that they cut a hole in his roof. And before he does anything, he wants the guy to know that his sins are forgiven and that when he does heal him, he needs to get a job and come fix the roof. Like, that's sort of the first thing. I think maybe there's just a little bit of self... Like, I forgive you for cutting the hole in, in, in the, the roof. It's okay. I think that's, I think that's the first thing. But I think the second thing, um, is that we know from, if you read the Gospels, that sin connected to, um, is connected to ailments. So if you are paralyzed, or if there's something wrong with your body, or if you have leprosy, or any of those kinds of things, it's because you did something wrong, right? Which is kind of, you know, sometimes the way you and I act. We think, oh, I made these poor choices, and this is why this bad thing happened to me. Which sometimes we make poor choices and bad things happen to us. But a lot of times we, I, I talk to people and they're like, why is God out to get me? Like, I did these things, and is he trying to punish me? You know, this happened to me, and this happened, and God's punishing me. They kind of have that mindset which is a very first century mindset, that God is punishing you for either something your parents did or something you did or some kind of sin in your family, and that's why you're blind, that's why you're, you know, whatever it is that's happened to you, happened to you, okay? So the reason that Jesus has to forgive the sins 
is because if he's going to heal the guy, it's kind of useless if he doesn't take care of the cause. Right? Kind of useless if he doesn't take care of the cause. So he, he says your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? I love it in the English. Why does this fellow? It's very British, I guess. Anyway, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Uh, and here's the third reason why Jesus forgave sins. Right? Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Mark, has what we see is that Jesus is slowly revealing to people that he's God without saying, hey, I'm God. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people say, oh, well, Jesus never says he's God. Yes, he does. He says it over and over and over again. And, and, and in this story, it's very clear. He's like screaming it at people. The only person who can forgive sins is God. The, the scribes and the Pharisees are saying, the only person who can forgive sins is God. And the first thing, when somebody has an ailment, that Jesus does, it says, your sins are forgiven. He's, he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm God. Now, immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, aren't you glad that I'm not Jesus? I mean, a lot of you are glad. I don't know what any of you are thinking right now. I mean, sometimes I look out into here and I think, oh, one of you is yawning. And I'm like, shoot, I'm boring. Okay, got to say something. Or others of you, I look out and I'm like, oh, there's my mom. Don't look over there. Okay. <laughs> right? Like, but I have no idea what anybody's thinking. But Jesus, if he were sitting here, he'd be like, oh, I know what Chris is thinking right now. Right? He wants to know if the Patriots are winning. No, that's not what he means. See, I don't know. If, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what I want to know. See, you guys know what I'm thinking. All right, down in the back, please. Thank you. I just feel for the scribes and the Pharisees because they can't win. They are. Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now, Jesus asked them two impossible questions. I mean, which is easier, to forgive sins? Well, for them, they're like, well, that's really hard because only God can do that. Or to heal a man who can't walk. Well, that seems really hard too. <laughs> like It's not like, well, neither. Like They're both really hard to do, is might be my answer to him. But, but Jesus says, look, just to show you that the Son of Man. Now, anytime you read Son of Man, there are two things you've got to keep in your mind. Number one is the real simple one. When a person in the first century was a Hebrew was trying to make a point, he would say, the Son of Man, which means this man, this particular man, and he's going to tell you something really important about himself. Right? So it just means that. On the other hand, if you go look at Daniel 7 and you look at the history of that phrase, Son of Man, you find out that it, it kind of evolves into this idea that anytime someone would hear it in the first century, they would think, oh, the Superman, the man who's the Messiah, the man who's coming to save us, okay? the one who's God. So he's 
every time he uses son of man, he's saying this particular man who happens to be the Messiah, who happens to be the Superman, who happens to be the one that Daniel talked about, that, that was talked about over the last 300 years. Okay, that's who it is. He's saying, so you know. And then he says, get up and walk. Get up and walk. Now, there's one other reason that Jesus may have said, your sins are forgiven. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I have encountered in my own life and I seem to be encountering over and over in your life or some of your guys' life, and I think it's true for all of us, but also in our culture, is that it seems like anxiety rules either our whole life or little parts of our life. Like some of us are like, man, I don't have any anxiety. I can handle my life. But there is that part where I need to talk to my son about you know, God and I really don't want to do that. Or I need to... You know, to engage my my uh, workmate in this like issue, like, but man, I'm terrified of that, and so there's a lot of anxiety there. But for others of us, it seems that our brains and the chemicals in our brains and just our life stories that anxiety seems to rule us. It has has a power over us, so that it paralyzes us. We we become paralyzed. See, in my life, like anxiety was a huge thing and still is, but. When I was in college, anxiety was would get so much in certain areas of my life where like and they had to do with public speaking a lot or having to go talk to somebody and I didn't know how they were going to respond at school or at work. And so I would literally like black out. Like I would go and like, okay, I gotta go to the school counselor. And then I'd be like, How come I'm eating at Burger King right now? How did I get to Burger King? I don't know. Right? Because I would just kind of space out. Or like I got an F in a class just because I didn't want to go stand in front of a bunch of people and do my final presentation. So instead, I just never went to class and failed it because I wanted to do that because it was just so terrifying to me. Right? It, it ruled, it controlled my life so that I was paralyzed. There was an element of me that was paralyzed. And when we're anxious, when we have anxiety, now, some of it is because it's just chemical issues. Now, and they produce a lot of anxiety. But regardless if they're chemical or not, anxiety has to do with control. Anytime that you feel anxious, it means that you're, you're want, you want to be in control. Like you are afraid of the circumstances, and there's a whole bunch of stuff outside of you that you can't control. And so possibly the paralyzing sin that you and I have when it comes to anxiety is that we just have this demand to be in control of everything. Like we want to be in control. What you find out the older and older you get is you realize you don't have control of anything, barely of your own self, like, and you don't. Like, even you don't have control of, of your subconscious. You just, things are out of control, right? But you try, and you try, and you come up with methods, and you, you submit to your anxiety, and you try to medicate your anxiety. And it's a journey. Sometimes God clears it away. But for this guy, God just wiped whatever it was out. But the first place he started was with the sin. Now for me, I think the sin that Jesus would look at me and say, you're forgiven of, in my paralysis, is that I want to control things. I want to control how people perceive me. I want to control the way that they engage me, how they feel about me. I want you all to like me. And I want to control that. When I feel like you don't like me, or you're going to be disappointed, then I want, there's, there's elements of anxiety there, right? So my sin is control. The sin of anxiety is control. And I think all of us wrestle 
with that, and it's paralyzing. I think it's, you know, a paralyzing experience. Um, and so for some of you, though, are like, I don't have any of that anxiety. And the reality is, is that you have it, but you've just pushed it all down. And so you don't feel anything because you're just numb to those things. But if we were to push a little bit and say, hey, what, why aren't you doing this in your life? Or why aren't you doing that? Or what's going on here? Then, oh, whoa, no, don't talk to me about that. Because actually that's a, a place of anxiety for you. So anyway, Jesus says, I'm going to heal him. I'm going to send him off. He got up. He took his mat. He walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, which tells this very same story, it also tells us that the man goes out praising God and telling everybody about what God has done. Now, here's the interesting thing. When this guy was healed, it wasn't like all of a sudden his marital relationships and his work life was fixed and everything was good. He could walk. But now he has to go home. Now he has to find a job. Now he's got to fix Jesus' roof. Like, now he has a whole new set of problems. And yet, that's not what's on his mind. What's on his mind is that he's telling everybody, hey, I couldn't walk. Jesus forgave my sins and told me to walk, and I can walk. Right? And one of the things that I... If you're not a Christian, then let me just tell you, the transformation of Jesus speaking into your life is an amazing experience. But if you've been a Christian for a while, what happens is it seems that we believe that it's not actually that big of a deal. It's actually not that amazing. And that most of us, when we begin to look at our life, we say, well, we weren't really paralyzed. We really didn't have those problems. Like, we got problems now. But we, you, the story, if you were a follower of Jesus, your story is amazing. Even if you grew up in a Christian home and as far back as you can remember, you we're a follower of Jesus. Your story is amazing. And what I realize as your pastor is what I have maybe not led you well in, and I need to apologize for this, is that I have not led you in a place where you and I have become a people who are constantly saying, oh my gosh, I met Jesus and everything was different. Everything has changed. This, I was a paralyzed person and now I am not. Right? I haven't, I haven't helped you with that well, I don't think we, we, we ha we're not that kind of people. Maybe some of you are, but I feel like I haven't led you well in that. And Galatians chapter 2, um, I think that the, the paralytic has sort of this experience. He hasn't experienced it yet because Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet, but Paul says um, something really interesting in Galatians chapter 2. So if you can write it down and go check it out. Um, but Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It's one of my favorite verses. But listen to what it says. I have been crucified, and this is Paul talking, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Look, all my life, because of my anxiety and because of my fear, I have been a liar. And the reason that I lied most of the time was because situations produced too much anxiety. From being a little kid at five and not wanting to come down the slides to being, you know, to having, walking away from classes because I just didn't want to do any public speaking or I didn't want to tell anybody I didn't understand. And so I would make a, plenty of excuses in my life. 
plenty of lines, plenty of alternative narratives about how life is and the way it was. But the thing about this verse, what it tells me is that the liar, the person who had to make up the false, those things that made me up, like because Christ, because I died on the cross with Christ, that liar is dead. So I'm not a liar. I'm not. Sometimes I lie. But my identity isn't a liar, and I'm not a person who needs to lie. And, and um, hey, guys in the back, you need to not talk. Please, thanks. It's even distracting to me back here. Thanks. Um, but, like, God has taken, is, is gone along and really wrenched that lying out of my soul. He's, he's healed me. And one of the ways he did that was when I was in college, um, I was in a college, you know, ministry in, in the church that I was going to, and one of the leaders w- would have wanted everybody to basically sign up each week to lead the Bible study. And so I had to lead the Bible study. I signed up. I don't know why I signed up. I'm very compulsive. Like, it's like, oh, I should sign up. Why did I do that? That was stupid. Uh, so I, I did the Bible study, and it was horrible. It was so bad that one of the seniors came up to me afterward. He pulled me aside. He says, that's the worst Bible study I've ever heard. I was like, oh, thanks. Thanks a lot. But what? But but he was trying to be genuine. He wasn't trying to be mean to me. Um, I thought I didn't like him for a while. But the next time that that opportunity came, again, I'm like, oh, slide my name right here. Um, but I'm like, not this time. Like, I was like, this. I'm going to do this right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and I'm going to do it. I don't know what I'm going to do. So I practiced and I practiced and I let it. And I was terrified, and I was shaking. And that guy pulled me aside afterwards, and he said, that was really good. What happened to you last time? <laughs> but God used that moment, that those just real simple words, then to when I started doing public speaking in college, in my, in my junior and senior year, I would, you know, I would on purpose take classes where I would stand in front of people and talk. And then people would pull me aside in the, in the in the parking lot. Oh, that was I love when you do you know when you teach. It's like oh wow, but God like just through somebody else stepping into my life, he he freed me of that. Now, is sometimes standing in front of you a little bit scary? Mostly when my mom is here. Um, yes, I'm just pick, I can pick on her a lot, but but a lot of my anxiety and being in front of people and we're, like God has taken that away and it, it's like a miracle because I don't know how he does it I get up here and I think I'm still terrified and then I start tar- talking and I'm not terrified because God's removed that from me it's a story I need to tell you often because God inserted himself that's just one little area where he inserted himself into my life where I'm the paralytic where I was paralyzed and now I can walk and I want you to know that it's a miracle that I stand up here and talk to you okay now, there's, when we talk about healing in this community, um, some of us, we've been talking about this a lot, some of us are the paralyzed person. Like, we're like, yeah, I'm that anxious person, and there's no way I'm overcoming my anxiety, right? Others of us um, feel powerless in other areas. Some of it's physical, like our, our body has just stopped working, and it keeps stopping working. It's like just going downhill, and it's not going to get better, and we feel powerless. There's a whole, you know, it's a plethora of things that all of us feel powerless in. But those four guys who carried that paralytic guy 
that's what I imagine the village to be. That's what I imagine you to be and what I want us to be and what I want is to be people who are willing to be like that guy who pulled me aside. Like we said, we're going to lift up this heavy guy who can't move and we're going to get him to Jesus. And that's what I, I long for all of us to be for one another, to be for our neighbors, to be for our community, is to be the four guys who have enough faith for those of us who don't have faith. I think that's really, really important because it's difficult to have faith. It's difficult to believe. And we need each other. And, and the reality is we need more than one person to grab us and bring us along to hear Jesus' words that our sins are forgiven and that we need to walk. Um, and so that's what I, I want. I guess the thing I want you to hear tonight is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a dramatic story. Even if you grew up and you were three years old and you became a Christian, you were baptized when you were seven, and you've never, you know, smoked, drank, done anything, you're like the perfect child. You have a dramatic story. And your family has a dramatic story. They got you there. There's this story of Jesus changing everything. Wherever you are, if you've met Jesus, your story is dramatic. It is, because sin is paralyzing. And it has paralyzed you in areas. And you've been free. Now, do you struggle? Yes. We all struggle. But you've been free. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. The Christ who died for you on the cross. So, that's my encouragement. I really want you guys tonight around eating, around kids running around crazy, around the noise, to be like, you know, let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. I want you to tell somebody. Go out. Tell your neighbor, hey, not here are the four spiritual laws about how you should become a Christian and you're a sinner and you need to repent, but you know, let me just tell you what Jesus has done. He's changed my life. And it was dramatic. What time is it? 6.06. Go for it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it can go both ways. It can. I, mean, I think they're combined. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Oh, there's a hand up there in the back. Uh, Sadducee believes the first five books of the Old Testament. Pharisees, yes. And the Sadducees are not necessarily that concerned with how the law works. More concerned about power. That's. Um, why they were in the ruling class, so they're right, right. Yes, in the back. That is that is a theological question that I cannot answer. 
<laughs> and any other any other questions that don't have to do with crayons? Yes, Corey. Mm -hmm. Hmm. That's awesome. That's really cool. Catch Corey and he'll give you more details. Anybody else have questions? Anybody? All right, let's pray. Father, I want to confess that I um, I haven't necessarily always been a person who is willing to just to see your intervention in my life as dramatic and to see it as a walking out of death and into life, um, and to your life, and not my own. And I, I want to ask that you would forgive me, and that you would give me the courage to be a person who, who proclaims what you've done in my life. And I ask that for this community also. And I ask all those things in your name, Jesus. Amen.